Growth Pod is brought to you by Genero, a leading growth agency in the Nordics. We interview marketing experts, business leaders, and entrepreneurs to uncover the stories and strategies behind profitable growth. Today's guest is Byron Sharp, a professor, author, and marketing researcher. Byron is the director of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute at the University of South Australia Business School, which is the world's largest research institute studying marketing. Welcome to the show, Byron. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I'm in Adelaide, but it's lovely to be here. On the opposite side of the planet. Um, I'm really excited to kind of have this opportunity to, to ask you questions and pick your brain. And uh, I would just want to just take a minute to kind of set it up and explain why. So years ago, I was involved in a branding project for a client and we were trying to figure out kind of like this long-term vision or overall direction to take this brand. And I was really frustrated because in the pre- previous years, I felt that there were no principles on which I could base my kind of intuition or or strategy when it comes to making these long-term bets. And so in this project was, was a really experienced marketer, one of the most kind of, well, uh, a, a respected, really experienced marketer. And I, I asked him for if he knows of any books that could kind of help me with, with that. And he, uh, he ended up buying me a book, which I read cover to cover. And it was exactly what I was looking for. It described these kind of law-like patterns of buying behavior um, that were actually empirically derived and based. And so I thought it was the best marketing book I've ever read. I uh, still think the same to this day. And uh, of course, the book is How Brands Grow, which you wrote. So for that reason, I'm really excited to, um, to like I said, pick your brain and uh, get to share some of your knowledge with our listeners. Thank you. I was going to say it's a tr- tremendous compliment. But then I thought, uh, maybe not so much because most marketing books are awful. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that, 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 that's true. But it, it certainly stands out. Um, in a kind of sea of opinions and and cliches and truisms. Yeah, it, it, I mean, its design was to introduce the world to uh, the fact that we did actually have scientific laws, you know, natural laws, patents that hold over a vast range of conditions to the world. And, you know, quote Joel Goodhart said, you know, uh, you know, Martin's not knowing about these things. It's like uh, you know, it's like being a you know, flight engineer and not knowing about gravity. We love Martin. We love to tell the rest of the organisation that we're the external facing part. You know, voice of the customer and all that. Uh, and yet, um, awful lot of markets don't actually go and get out of their office very much. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, we're not aware of uh, the, the empirical laws. And you know, empirical laws just mean law-like patterns in the real world. Exactly. Maybe it's because we as marketers feel that we have the power to change perception. So we these rules of how people actually think shouldn't be applied to us. Um, maybe. Oh, I think it's maybe that we feel that we intuitively know things. But, but human beings have thought that for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, that intuitively known why the sun comes up or you know that that river was caused by a great snake 10,000 years ago you know stories like that we always felt that we have if we can tell a good story and everyone nods well it must be true 
Um, you know, the scientific revolution is only about 300 years old. It's quite embarrassing for humans, actually. 300 years ago, we decided, well, maybe we should, you know, stop theorizing and go out into the real world and study it carefully. You know, just, you know, take timings or measure things and stuff. You know. And then, lo and behold, we started to document patterns. And that's what scientific laws are. And of course, there are in marketing too, uh, because the marketing is in a real world. And while we can't predict what an individual consumer might be able to do, is going to do tomorrow, we can predict an aggregate that a 18% share brand will be bought by this many people over the next six months and will be bought by those people on average this many times. We can predict that, yes. I love what you said because that's the feeling I had reading the book is that there were so many things that were completely not intuitive for me. And there are so many things that are spouted that are that seem logically obvious or, or, or true. And so I'd love to start that, start the conversation there uh, and just kind of throw out a few things that I think are generally seen as true, but may not be. So I'll, I'll let you respond in, in however you want. Okay. I'll preface, I'll preface it by, you know, it, it's, I think it's near impossible to think of a scientific discovery that at least at the time that was seen as really weird and counterintuitive. And I love saying the real world is a weird place. So if you think you can understand it without going and collecting serious systematic evidence, you're wrong because your view will be wrong. It'll always be much weirder than you thought. That, that's, a, that's a good point, a good place to start. So you, you tell me, you tell me the, the classic, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the first one I have is everyone knows that it's way more profitable to retain an existing customer than it is to go out and acquire a new one. What are your thoughts? Oh, right. Well, yes, that's, that's very wrong. Uh, if you think about that, just logic, I mean, you think, well, what, what, what does that mean? And, and you, you have, so to, to make those two things comparable, acquiring a customer, this is what it would, the other would be stopping a customer leaving. Right? And so, and so you have to ask, well, how cheap is it to stop customers leaving? And you only have to think about that actually for realize that it's actually really difficult. Um, so research has shown the major reasons that customers leave are things completely outside of market's control, right? So for things like um, they die or they move country or, you know, there's just all these big changes in their life that you can't stop. So he, you know, it's a line in one of our um, research articles that says, you know, even growing brands lose customers. <laughs> now, so then you go, okay, well, how, how cheap is it to change that? And it turns out it's it's terribly <laughs> difficult to change. I mean, we, we don't, we, when we compare brands, they all pretty much have exactly the same defection rates. What distinguishes brands is uh, is that they, they don't have the same acquisition rates, though. Growing brands can be acquiring customers at, at way more than you'd expect that they should. So that's why they're growing, right? Um, and so growth is caused by acquisition, unusual, unusually high acquisition. Uh, decline is not caused by unusually high defection. It's, it's caused by a lack of underperforming on acquisition. So, you know, once you realize that, that's those are the empirical paths, right? That's what happens in the real world. And then a consultant comes to you and says, oh, it'll be way cheaper to move your defection. You work well, none, none, none of the other, all the brand, all the brands in the world, they have this, they have pretty much the same defection rates depending on their category and their size. Uh, 
So, if it, I mean, if it was easy to move, why has no one moved it? You know, uh, but but brands have outperformed each other in acquisition rates. So that must be possible. Okay, right. You know, Toyota has become the world's, are they number one or pretty close to that, right? Number one car brand in the world. But they used to be a little car brand in Japan. Uh, and they've done a staggering job at acquisition. But if we look at them now as a brand, go, do you lose customers? Oh, yeah, we still lose customers. But they've done better at acquisition. That's why, that's how they became number one. Are you saying that like these cult brands like an Apple, like essentially Apple has the same defection rate as someone, as a Samsung, for instance? Yeah, if you compare the, you have, you have to compare the um, top-end phones. You can't just look at all phones because Apple doesn't play. Samsung plays in all sorts of different lower ends. But take the flagship Samsung phones and the flagship Apple phones, and they have uh, the same uh, defection rates, which uh, for mobile phones are, it's pretty high repeat rates because, particularly for the premium ones, because people tend to trade up, <laughs> down, and uh, yeah, well, once you've got a phone, it's really nice. You tend to because they're always bringing out new. By the time you go to get to a new phone, um, there's been three or four or five models, so the new one is pretty attractive. You know, so it's uh, the, the repeat rates are quite high, much higher than say something like cars. Uh, but yeah, top top Samsung model has. Same rates as Apple. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because it kind of goes against this marketing lore that you want to build this cult brand that people tattoo like Harley Davidson. Um, but actually, you're saying acquisition is the only thing that matters in the end if you want to grow your brand. Yeah, Harley Davidson owners buy Harley Davidson about one third of the time. This is the time that, on average, they buy another brand. Yeah, you you wouldn't think that from how it's kind of talked about in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not a very big brand in the world, right, Harley-Davidson, uh, but of course it, it gets talked about way too much in the, the marketing bubble. <laughs> yeah. So we have a very distorted view of what Harley, how that brand actually competes with other brands. I used to go around taking photos. I, I think I've got it in the, in the, I think in the online version of How Brands Grow, uh, I think I've got a few photos there of all these lovely, you know, you know, a, a big touring bikes, right? And, I, and each one, it's like, is that a Harley? No. Is that a Harley? No. Is that a Harley? No. They have lots of competitors. Wow, that's that's a good point. We do, and we do live in a bubble. I think as as marketers, I'm pretty sure if you ask you own something like a Triumph or something, they'd go, "Oh yeah, I've got the cool brand." And <laughs> that's true. So, the second one, slightly related to the first one, uh, loyalty programs. Obviously, they're popular because they work. You know, it's a for a small cost, you can retain these very profitable. Uh, customers and keep them loyal, which is very profitable for the firm. Uh, no, I don't. The only loyalty programs that make money are the uh, ones like Qantas, and they don't make money from the program per se, you know, holding on to more customers. It's that they sell involvement to other, like Australian banks who want to, you know, entice people to use their credit card by giving them Qantas points, and that, that's quite lucrative for, for Qantas. But in general, a loyalty program for a retailer or something, no, they lose money. Uh, they are a cost. Uh, why do you get into them? Probably fashion, because someone's told you that you should. Awfully hard to get out of once you've got them, which is yeah, why you should actually do homework beforehand. Uh, no, the, the pretty consistently, because now quite a lot of studies over, um, gosh, I suppose it's 20 years now, uh, 
have shown that loyalty programs have a very weak effect on loyalty. And, and we know why, because we now know why. And that's that, uh, of course, they attract our most loyal customers, right? Uh, they're the ones who are going to go, ooh, I shop here all the time. I'm going to get lots of points. Isn't that excellent? Um, we're actually the last people we want to join the loyalty program because they're going to be most expensive. Uh, we want people who are the heavy loyal buyers of another brand to join us, but, but we don't get that. Um, and then, yeah, they give away value to people who are going to buy from you anyway, which is uh, quite expensive. And if someone is already you know, giving you a very large share of their category of purchases, it's very hard for them to give you any more. And it's not the loyalty program points aren't really much of an incentive to do it. So we, we don't get much of a loyalty effect, and, and but we do get the cost. So, um, yeah, well, certainly they're not growth. They're not they're hopeless of growth. I just remember we do actually get quite reasonable amounts of loyalty. It's a natural human behavior to be behaviorally loyal. Consumers, you know, like if someone wants an expensive um, executive development course, they've got, you know, work signed off and paying $100,000 for you to go and do a one-month course somewhere, you just immediately, you know, you think of, you know, the top business schools come to mind, right? And you choose out of, you know, two or three or four out of the 20, 30,000 choices you could have. So humans are naturally quite willing to be loyal. Uh, and so it's really dangerous to go giving them points, or dangerous, expensive, giving them points for Oh, thank you. That's lovely. Thank you. I always fly with Qantas here. I'm sure Australian. It's, it's quite hard not to fly with Qantas. Uh, so, of course, you join the program and, and they give you stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, no, loyalty programs, yeah, they don't have a huge effect. They, uh, they're not growth mechanisms because for a brand to grow, it must expand its customer base. And that means recruiting people who are actually uh, non-buyers your brand or very rare occasional buyers of your brand you know they're very you're a very small brand in their repertoire and nudging them to you know make that a bigger brand as well and you know i can think of you know a dozen things off the top of my head that would be much 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 more targeting towards those light and non-buyers than a loyalty program really hard you really want to you really want to really sell your loyalty program or, or you know enrollment in your loyalty program in your competitor stores but they won't let you so so is there any role for marketing um we think about these loyal customers and and certainly like there i'm guessing is i guess what i'm saying is is it the role of other business functions certainly like customer service to make sure that those customers are happy and they keep buying from you do you think marketing should primarily or only focus on light or non-buyers Where's a role to play? We're always doing things for existing customers, and it, uh, existing customers, you know, even when we run our, you know, new advertising campaign and things, it's existing customers who notice them ahead of other people. Um, it's it's the challenge, the marketing challenge, the great challenge is to reach people who are, or, you know, even not in the category, or they're in the category, but our brand is just not that. That is the challenge. Uh, we're, you know, we of course, you know, to what are the best loyalty nurturing things? Uh, they're, they're mainly, you know, fixing major stuff ups. You know, like just making it easy for people to keep on doing what they're doing. Whenever we do something like change a pack design, move things around in store, change policies, uh, these are disruptors that 
So we don't want it. This does not nurture loyalty. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, third one, kind of talking then about how do we target these buyers? So statement is you should always focus on a niche. Like you should pick within your overall customer, potential customer base, you pick a certain segment and it's complete ways to try to target broadly, pick a niche and then tailor your messaging towards that specific sub-segment sub of customers. Yeah, and well, we see, see some of that in the real world, but it's largely geography bound. You know, that an Adelaide plumbing service would be stupid to run ads in Brisbane because they don't service Brisbane houses. So so we, we certainly see that on a geographical basis. But beyond that, when you talk about brands that span geographies and compete with other brands that span geographies, and you look at their customer base, their customer base looks pretty much identical to the category, you know, in there are men and women and children. You know, there's also heterogeneity in the customer base, but that customer overall, that heterogeneity looks exactly the same as the category. That means you're selling to everyone in the category. So you can tell yourself that you're uh, you're appealing to 28 to 38 urban women with a positive outlook and uh, socially responsible or something. But you know, they're a tiny. They, no, no, they're probably a sliver of your customer base, and you're actually selling to a lot more other people. Uh, so that's quite a, you know, we're talking at the start about how marketing like to say to the rest of the organization, we understand the customer. Now, sometimes marketing just comes up with this fantasy vision of the customer. That's not understanding the customer base. Yeah, you know, we should understand that the customer base is, it's, it's quite diverse and it's everyone who can buy the category. And then you think, okay, how do we appeal to all of those people? And all the great brands of the world have, have worked out how to have, you don't become mass without mass appeal. Do you, do you, would you say that it's generally a waste of time, these exercises of creating ICPs or buying personas? It just feels good, but you're not really doing anything insightful? Well, certainly, yeah, there's certainly a lot of time wasted, yes. But um, uh, can it be delusional? Yes, absolutely. You know, Frozen, I think Frozen was a fantastic hit for Disney, right? It appeals to little girls particularly. Yeah, okay, so, well, but that said, there'll be tons of little boys who watch Frozen. Uh and, but, it, you know, it's mad. It cuts and peels across cultures, across socio-demographics, you know, and that's why Trojan is a big success. And there's just no avoiding that. You can't say, I want to be a big brand, but I only want to sell to these sort of people. Yeah. I, I see something sometimes. I was sitting in London and I saw some women's fashion thing that said, you know, such and such customer is positive and outgoing and caring and blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah whatever you wish. <laughs> Your customers are all sorts of people and some of them are having a bad mood day and you know, <laughs> ridiculous. So it's very easy that we can be quite delusional. I only want to sell to the, I only want to sell to the beautiful people. Uh-huh. We can be a bit snobby in marketing, can't we? Absolutely. So how do you think that then, that should then I guess have a direct impact on how we think about media? And what channels we use? Yes, exactly. We need um, we need media that can reach all of our category buyers, and uh, that might require using several different media. Uh, but uh, unless we're a super big brand, probably I mean, in general, marketers probably use far too much media. They just sort of throw, talk about targeting, and then they're using seventeen different channels. 
crazy. Um, but yes, yeah, so yeah, reach is not optional. Oh, unless you want to be, you want to shrink. I was just reading a American article in some, it's not an academic journal, it's sort of a pretend academic journal. Anyway, uh, and, you know, it's talking about some, it's, uh, it was a thing selling some consultant's product, you know, and it was about targeting, you know, uh, I think it was about 15% of, of the brand's buyer base and saying, you know, get a higher ROI if you did this. It's like, well, yeah, of course, you can target the people who are, you know, most likely to buy next month, but that, that's pretty much the same as saying we can take the advertising budget and just spend a bit more in store and then we'll be able to see it in next month's sales. Yeah, sure. Yes, that's true. But the fact is, if we want to grow as a brand, we need to re and if we want to stay the size we are. We need to reach that other eighty-five percent of of people and more. Uh, it's just not optional. And I guess also there's a kind of delusion there that we'll be able to convince these people, we'll be able to influence these this small segment, when in reality, like it's really hard as marketing. Uh, well, we'll get to that later. I think the role, the kind of mechanism of marketing. I'd love to take, get your take on that. It was actually an academic article just came out very recently, and they showed that uh, some, some digital media that, uh, yeah, you would you would need like you know if you did, it wasn't even that much targeting, but you needed to to, to same return, you needed to double the click rate, and, and, and they looked, they went, it doesn't happen, <laughs> it doesn't happen. You're not going to get double, so you're not going to get double. Then stop narrowing your targeting. Good point. Okay. What are your thoughts on discounts and promotions as a way of getting those incremental sales, incremental new customers? I guess the problem with there was incremental. So, uh, so study, you know, there's been I know, 50 years of studying price promotions, so we know we know a lot about them. They they cause sales spikes, yes, of course, because you know the, the brand on deal. Yes, but what's happening is it's not pulling in extra customers. What it's doing is that a typical buyer has a, you know, a repertoire of brands. They come up to the shelf or they, you know, they're looking on their phone and they, they see they see various options that they can buy. And they see one of their brands is on special. Well, then that that really helps the decision that that day quite substantially, right? So they buy, and that causes a sales spike. Um, but those aren't pulling in new customers to the brand. Those are people, pulling people who they had a chance of buying you. So say say there are three brands in the repertoire, and they were equally distributed. So that person has about a third of a chance of buying at any time. But when you're on special, they maybe have two thirds of a chance, right? So yeah, sales spike, wonderful, great. But you haven't won new customers from that. They have very low reach. And really, let's face it, most of your customers. Aren't in the aren't in the store that week. They're not even looking to buy from you, so they're very very limited reach. Um, but they produce a sales bike up and down, um, and then of course your competitors do the same <laughs> next week and steal from your full priced sales in retaliation. So it's, you know they they can't make money. They're an investment. Well, they're a cost. They're an investment. You cannot make money from them. They don't do anything to grow the brand. Um, why do you do them? Why do you do some? Uh, because the, they're part of, you know, if a retailer is a high-low retailer and they have price promotions, then you have to play the game and do some. But you don't want to do any more than you, you need to. The idea that you're winning new customers is, is if you're telling yourself that, that, then the odds are you're going to overspend on because of that delusion. Yeah. If you tell yourself, oh, we've got to do some of this to keep the retailer happy, 
uh, then you're probably going to get it right. You're going to do just the amount you have to do to keep retailer sweet. So it's a necessary evil, kind of. Um, it, it, can, it can be, yes. Yeah, it's, it's certainly... Um, yeah, there's lots of stuff we do in marketing that are necessary. But we, you know, if we had the choice, we wouldn't offer delivery. <laughs> we wouldn't, there's lots of things we wouldn't do, uh, but you have to, to get customers. Got it. Um, this thing, this one kind of thing, I, I don't think there's necessarily much or any empirical research on, but I'd love to get your opinion on it just in, in general. So this idea that brands in 2023 have to include some higher purpose, some environmental or social cause, in their kind of brand messaging because customers demand it and there's it's not just enough to just sell the product, focus on the benefits and the features of the product. What are your thoughts? Okay, well, there is some empirical evidence on that, right? I mean, we, we can stop and think for a bit. You get, can you name a few brands that have been highly successful that don't do that? Well, yeah, I can name hundreds, if not thousands of friends that are highly successful have not done that. So there's, there's immediate sort of falsification of you have to do it. Um, but we've got research going on in the Institute on looking at the empirical claims for creditors. Um, first of all, just documenting, do consumers really know what the brand's purpose is? Because if they don't know it, it's very hard for them to react to it. Uh, and secondly, those who do know it, do they, does, does it? Do they care about it? Does it in some way affect their behavior? Does it affect their perceptions of the brand? I mean, I've got to, I've got to think better about it or think that it's more, you know, differentiated or something, right, for it to work. So we're, we're, we're documenting up those things. Uh, it, so the scary thing is what you've just said is a fairly uncontroversial. There'd be uh, thousands of people have probably said that, nodded their heads at conferences. You know, really? So we just launched into this, we, we're, like sheep, we we just accept something because someone says it at a conference. Uh, and if we think about it, we can think of really successful brands that haven't done that. Uh, yeah, like they, what's the poster child Patagonia, right? For um, purpose, yeah, yeah, I'm doing, and they're hugely successful product is that puffer jacket, right? Really, puffer jackets are big all around the world, yeah. Which is made from fossil fuel, by the way, which is not really that uh, not really sustainable. <laughs> trade in, trade in your woolen jumper for a fossil fuel puffer jacket. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so Patagonia is the poster child for, but but then you look around. I mean, I can look around people with Adelaide, and, and there's, there's people with puffer jackets that are by Kathmandu and Kmart and Target, and you know, uh, Patagonia. Tiny, tiny, tiny brands. So there's lots of other brands that don't do that. They succeeded. Why have they succeeded? Because puffer jackets are really popular. I, I guess also that, that marketers are kind of threatened by that idea because it could make us seem a bit redundant. And we're not the masters of the universe. We're actually controlling and building this loyalty and affinity towards the brand. Um. You know, maybe that's my thing. I think markets are often very uh, arrogant, quite snobby, and a little bit delusional. <laughs> I don't know what psychologists would bundle those things together for. Uh, but yeah, you know, like pretty wonderful jobs. Life is a wonderful profession. It is, um, the market economy has made the world richer, safer, happier than ever before. Um, 
it's not a bad thing to, I mean, the economy is people doing things for other people. The market and things that other people want. Markets work to work out what people want and, and deliver that like coffee jackets yeah <laughs> that's a fantastic thing to do I don't I don't I don't I'm a bit surprised why markets feel they need to layer on layer on an apology as well you know consumers don't consumers are very happy you look you're in little kids and you watch them delighted that they've you know opened a can of soft drink this is fun you know they don't go oh and now I also have to you know, to tell me what you're doing for you know building wells in Africa or something that out. Yeah, I think maybe it's also um, can speaks to our marker sense of self importance, I guess. Um, also, cringe. I think I think that there is some cringe. There's there's a lot of people in marketing who, who feel that they uh, somehow <laughs> commercial is bad. It's the old. We still inherit a whole lot of Victorian um, things. So the only noble profession is to own land and <laughs> not work. And, Looking down on the merchant class, it's it's funny. We have we still have these snobby attitudes, don't we? So, kind of related to that is this idea of differentiation, and that being the key to all success in marketing and branding. That you must build a very differentiated product and brand that appeals to again a very specific segment of the overall market. What are your thoughts on that? Um, so that logic comes from one is avoiding competition. Right. I mean, I've seen even non-marketers do this. They just naturally want to not compete. Right. So can I find something that someone else is not making? Which is pretty hard, but there is a natural desire for that. Then there's also what sounds like impeccable logic, which is the David Acker and Colin have all expressed this of saying, if people don't see a meaningful difference in a product, you know, they don't, they don't see it's different from the others and it's a difference they like, then why would they be loyal? And that sounds, this is the problem of intuitive um, myths. If they sound sensible, they endure. And that sounds just like impeccable logic. Yeah, of course. Like, you know, some, if, if someone just thought this brand was pretty much the same as that other brand, then why on earth would they be loyal to it? But what we've learned in studying consumers is, it's a bit like consumers have said back to us, consumers said, but why wouldn't I be loyal to it? Not, but, why would you be loyal to your car or your bank when you feel that it's just the same as the others? They go, well, why wouldn't I? It's just so easy. It's just so easy to keep buying around. If, if, if I think it's the same as the others, well, then I'll just keep buying this one then. Because <laughs> it's just as good. And, and, and indeed, they're right. <laughs> you know, it is. So can you talk about then how distinctiveness is different from differentiation and why I guess I mean, yeah so most brands if we look if we look in a you know look at, I don't I'm a, I work in a business school right here in Adelaide and uh you know every year we will graduate hundreds and hundreds of accounting students and they'll go out to accounting practices and each accounting practice will be pretty much exactly the same as every other accounting practice um except for maybe a few creative ones will end up in jail but you know in the main they will be undifferentiated in that sense and other other than you know, where geography, where their offices. That is the fact of modern markets. Modern markets are, tend to have competitive matching. There isn't huge differentiation. But there are brands. Right? So um, I don't even know that M&M's, right, multi-billion dollar brand from Mars, is actually a copy of um, what became uh, 
smart Nestle Smarties. I, I don't think it was Nestle original. It might have been Brown Tree I don't anyway. Candy coated chocolate, right? So it's a complete copy of it. Um, but one of them is just so much bigger than the other one. The one is just fabulous because it's got the it's got the M and M's characters, right? I mean, it's just its branding is just wonderful right? and so much better. Yep. So, can, branding is essential because consumers can't consume. I say, so here you've got consumers; they're busy, distracted, they have lives, very happy to be loyal to a few brands that they know and to pretty much disregard the others unless the others come up with some amazing creative way to get their attention. They're willing to be loyal, but they do need to know which of their brands. They do, the branding has to be there, otherwise they will get distracted and go off to another one. If they come into the shelf and they go, oh, right, what's our milk? Which which milk will we buy? You know, which, which if they don't know, you know, which is the one is theirs that they're not going to get in trouble with when they take home. <laughs> yeah. Then they, then they can't be loyal. Uh, so distinctiveness, branding, making sure that people can... If if someone, if a new consumer tries to and goes, oh, I like this, I like this yogurt, this is really nice. Do they get in their brand what the brand name is or what it looks like and where it is on shelf or where you would buy it? So branding is very, very important in a, in a world that is largely not hugely um, differentiated. Yeah. McDonald's, wow, are they just such a fantastic, distinctive, what do McDonald's sell? They sell American diner food, right? You know, the American classic American diner, you know, the sort of James Dean, you know, 1950s, Formica tables. So what, soft drinks, shakes, fries, burgers. Ah, wow. McDonald's is just a 1950s American diner. Yeah. But it's so distinctly McDonald's, isn't it? No, I mean, it's distinctiveness is just fantastic. Golden Arches, uh, Scottish name. You know, all of these things are sort of weird. Not, nothing really to do with American diners, but they're all about branding McDonald's. I can tell you we've done surveys. Consumers rate McDonald's rather very low for perceived differentiation. Wow, that's but, really interesting. But, but it's distinctive, yes. Wow. Uh, legal judges make a very clear distinct, distinction between these two concepts um, because uh, differentiation, meaningful benefit for consumers, either has to be covered by a patent or otherwise you don't get protection for it. You know? uh, I always think there must have been a time, I don't know when it was, when some TV manufacturer came out with the first remote control and consumers loved it, right? They should love to not have to get up from the couch. They could change the channel. This is fantastic. And it's so good that all the other manufacturers just copied it immediately. Now, if that TV company had gone into court with the judge and said, they, they, we, we, we said we are the only ones allowed to remote control, unless they had a patent for the tech, you know, which lasts for a little while, the judge would just go, no, sorry, it's a benefit to consumers. So, no, the law does not protect anything that's a benefit to consumers. However... If someone tried to steal the M&M's characters off Mars and they went into court, the judge will rule, no, those are Mars. They they signal that the product is coming from the Mars Corporation. That's branding. No, you're not allowed to steal that. That is covered by law. So distinctiveness can be defended by law. Differentiation, not. And so judges, I, mean, I do find it interesting because I see debates on LinkedIn and things. He can seriously... Well-paid marketers who, who find it difficult to handle these two concepts 
I go, but legal judges can. They're not even in marketing. They have no problem whatsoever. I think, I think, I guess it might have or Yeah, I guess it speaks to the fact that certain professions are more rigorous than others. Uh, you hear some of my and they'll say, differentiation is It's just semantics, isn't it? I go, uh, no. Tell, you try telling that to a judge. You try telling that to a judge. Uh, oh, yeah, we, we stole their everybody's characters. But, you know, it's really differentiation. You know, it's, it's a benefit to the consumer. So, you know, it's just, it's just semantics, right? Yes, you will get laughed out of court. One thing that I'd love to ask you, I, you know, it's kind of a very broad question, so you can take it however you want. But this idea of the mechanism through which advertising marketing actually works. I think we've touched upon, or you've touched upon certain pieces of it, but if you had to explain like succinctly, how does it actually, what is the actual benefit to the company? Through which mechanism does marketing actually work? And Because what I find is that there's, there are so many different understandings and expectations, let's say across, for instance, management team. CFO has one expectation that marketing will be very measurable it will be maybe very immediate. Uh, the CEO may have another, and the CMO have a completely different expectation. So, so in your view, how would you describe the process through which marketing actually generates growth? Well, the the the, the story, the the theory uh, that that matches the empirical laws that we know, right, matches the real world, is that in the long run, or to to explain why a brand has so much sales and this one doesn't, or you know, it's about how much mental and physical availability those two brands have. So, marketing has a fairly good claim to say that you know it's our job to nurture those, along with sales and stuff. But you know, we play a substantial role in nurturing those two assets of mental availability and physical availability, and the building of those assets takes a long time. Uh, the Fortunately, they don't disappear overnight either. That's good, but the nurturing of them is re- required. But it means that what I'm what I'm doing today as a marketer is largely about building the value of the share price, which is based on our 10, 20 in the year's next performance. Right? It's not about what we're doing today. If you want to actually know what's driving the sales today, it's the work of the marketing of people that were here 10 years ago and 20 years ago. That that is the reality. Uh, that's the way that marketing works. It works, you know, there are a few things that we do that show up immediately in this week's sales, and that's like a price promote. Anything we do in-store or at the point of buying, you know, the Google uh, you know, paid search and things like that, that are, just, that are just hitting the people who are actually buying this week. But everything else we do is, is putting things in place that are there for the, all the people who aren't buying this week that are, you know, aren't going to buy for ages. Therefore, the children that aren't yet born yet, or the or the little kids that are learning today that you know, Ford is a brand of car, it's going to substantially increase their chance that they'll buy a Ford later on in their life. That, that's that's the way that marketing uh, affects the world. I think this is. I remember reading some article of yours. You said you were taught when you were studying marketing correctly that uh, advertising was a weak force. So I guess that's what uh, how we should think about it. Yeah, that's um, that was the, the classic debate. 
transfer was that Andrew Aaron move for a week. Yeah, it is, I mean, it's a weak force, but uh, but a very it's like gravity. Gravity is a weak force, right? Uh, but it has it's, it's still substantial impact. Um, and with, look, hardly anyone in there, very rarely in your life do you see an ad and go, oh, yeah, that, uh, that, is, that, uh, that is a much better brand. Yeah, it does happen, but it's not a big part of advertising. Um, so, you know, it's a weak force in the sense that it can't, and political advertising has been shown to do this too, that it's, it's some effect is pretty much zero as far as persuasive, you know. You tell people that it just, because people, we know it's being sold, the source that's coming to us is quite biased and wants us to say this one's better than that one, you know. Uh, it, it, so it's not, it's not a very persuasive force. But, it does refresh memories, and it does tell us about new brands, so it builds memories. It does tell us things like the McDonald's now does breakfast, or you know, builds memories that allow us to buy. And it does that at scale, or can do that at scale. Right? And the great thing, it's a weak force, but, it, but it's a force that can act on millions, if not billions of people. So, you know, I, you know say you're a super, you know, you're Coca-Cola or something, and you, know, you look at one of your brands and you go, you know, Today, a million people in this country, you know, bought from the, the category. Like, okay, cool. But there's 400 million people in the country. And with advertising, I can actually reach that 399 other million people. They will buy at some other time. So advertising is a weak force, but, it, but it's potentially a very, very broad force. Which means that the potential impact over time can be absolutely enormous between a brand that does it well and one who doesn't do it well. Yes. And so there are brands that we build without advertising. I mean, particularly if their category is taking off and they open stores, they get into stores, yeah, that's fine. But it's very hard to stay a big brand when you've got competitors without advertising. Uh, so it's hugely about the main, it's about the future of the brand. So how much we spend on advertising uh, is largely a forecasting question. How much do we want to invest in this brand? Do we think it's got a great future? Yes, then, then we should be investing in it. If we think, nah, this, this thing is like, it's going to be gone in five, 10 years, then yeah, you wouldn't spend much on advertising. If you stop advertising, our research shows that uh, it appears that there is a, you know, a, a decay effect that, you know, the brand starts to lose share, et cetera. But it doesn't happen immediately. You know, but the fact is that our advertising today is largely about the next, you know, five, 10 years. So turn it off for a quarter and uh, what happens? Pretty much nothing. Whereas if you shut the doors of a store, well, you see it in sales immediately because that's about the people who are buying this week. Advertising is not about the people who are going to buy next month. Got it. Price Got it. Uh, one final question for you, Byron. So if marketing then is, is this force which acts over a very long period of time and that's spread, it's spread very, it's spread very, very thinly, you know, the, the, we, we, last year we advertised some scholarships for really bright people coming into the marketing degree. Um, and we know that, you know, the amount of you know, year 12, sorry, about 17-year-old students who are considering a business degree is, is an absolute fraction of the population. And uh, our chance to, you know, the weak force of saying that there's a scholarship is very, very small. 
the main effect of our advertising is just reaching the 99.9% of people who aren't about to start a business degree, but who might later in the future or have children or colleagues or grandchildren, and then they might go, oh, in Adelaide, this is a this is the best one of the best marketing degrees in the world. I, I remember seeing an ad for that many years ago. Most most of I'm about to write an article that says um, some people have said that most of advertising's effect, you know, maybe like fifty five percent of advertising's effect is long term. I'm like, no, it's that's a way underestimation. It's like ninety eight percent of advertising's effect is in the long term. You cannot have much of it. The stuff that affects next week's sales is the advertising that was done way, 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 way ago, and the stuff that you're doing in store or on screen today, which is not advertising. Wow, ninety-eight percent. Yeah, I, I understand. You know, something in that. Kind of yes, I'm working about how what portion of your category yeah. buyers are actually in the market next week, and yeah. even for big, fast-moving. Goods categories, it's, it's not it's not that many. So, if it is really, really about the long term, how do we today judge whether the the kind of the, the strategy or the messaging that we picked is the one is the correct message that we can really kind of push for the next five, ten, fifteen years? And when do we when do we know when it's time to to, to switch and, and and to try something else? Like, how can we know today if it's really about long term? If if what we're doing will work in the long term. Um, well, this is about understanding. So you need to you need to, to have a disciplined knowledge base of understanding um, what are the, the distinctive assets for your brand and, and making some strategic choices of which assets you can invest in. You need to understand what, what Jenny calls the category entry points, the, the cues that fire in people's brains that bring them into the category. And you need to say, you know, are we communicating those? And and once you have that, then you can assess your advertising and you can craft your advertising message to do that. Um, and then you can get creative because there's no there's no textbook thing that says that, you know, this sort of, you know, ants with kittens and them work better. You know, there's just there's no there's, there's no clear guidelines on that. There's all sorts of different ways of being creative. But you need to do it in a way that builds the right memory structures for your brand and for your category. Got it. Byron, thank you so much for taking time to uh, to come on the show. What's the best place for people who want to follow your research, uh, kind of what you're interested in and reading about and and, and, and learning? Uh, is it LinkedIn the best place to follow you? Uh, yeah, we're active on uh, the Nero Bass Institute's active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, of course, we, we pop onto Amazon and stuff and buy our, our books, which of course I'd recommend. Uh, and I recommend you read them multiple times. Uh, MarketingScience.info. If you if you just Google Byron Sharp or Aaron Boot Bass, uh, I don't think we're that hard to find in this very connected world. And um, you know, if you, I mean, if you're serious about that, then you become a sponsor of the institute. And so we have a family of many corporations around the world that are trying to transform their marketing, which is not as easy as it sounds. Uh, and so. They they get access to a lot of stuff in the institute, but we also stick stuff out in public domain as well. Awesome! Like I said, thank you so much for taking time, and uh, I really look forward to keep following you and and learning from you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
you can find all episodes of The Growth Pod on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts.